Our role is evolving into what we call an innovation hub. You can tell that we are a changing organization um, because, of course, we're trying to make change happen in the water industry, which is not easy. But our previous historical model was to constantly build value. Of course, we started in algae, transitioned to water tech, acquired PWT. 2018, we launched Modular Water. There was mm -hmm. a, an abortive crypto, which is now being planned as this dollar H2O. And then adding water on demand and then the Water For Us program. And finally, the Veramod pump stations. The problem with it is it was a bulky model and it was also constant burn. Uh, about a month ago, we moved to a different point of view where we successfully launched Water On Demand with its Water For Us program. And we said, well, wait a minute, let's make that what we do. So in this model, uh, Water On Demand being, of course, the water as a service uh, pre-funded systems that enable end users to just sign a piece of paper, their water taken care of on a per gallon basis. Water For Us is focused on human communities. We've had a lot of action with, with uh, freeway travel stops, hotels, RV campgrounds, uh, trailer parks, and also housing developments. We put that in a separate category because it's a huge mega trend of people moving to areas that are much more spread out, more rural, less uh, sewage service, and thus needing uh, a freestanding uh, water treatment capability along with maybe even energy independence and so forth. Very exciting trend. And in this model, Origin Clear offers the management support so that Water On Demand Inc with its Water For Us program is an independent company, but it doesn't have to replicate HR, legal, finance, etc. That all is handled by Origin Clear. And as we move forward in time, we have the prospect next year of doing something. Dollar H2O is the asset wrapper uh, using blockchain that we're looking at. And exciting is that we might be taking a Veramod. It's going to be early 2023. We're going to make it its own little business unit. Crowdfunding has become so packaged and productized that you can deploy a marketing campaign and fund a company prospectively, it being uh, a public company. And the key players in each one of these companies get a tremendous equity share and thus they get more directly rewarded. It's very targeted. Moving on to 2025, we're looking at your own organization um, potentially becoming spun out company and finally aggressive water treatment which itself has some uh, trade secrets that are worthwhile but these five properties water on demand dollar h2o Veramod, moderate water and progressive are the jewels in the crown that we're going to roll out and this model origin clear again is the mothership that enables each one of these to be very tactical very focused and origin clear gets management fees which enables it as a mothership to be profitable and itself go on to the NASDAQ. It creates this cool launch pad role for Origin Clear, which is very unique in the water industry. We have them in Silicon Valley, we don't really have them in water. So Origin Clear has that role and eventually gets monetized as such and has a big chunk of each one of these companies for its pains. And we end up with, you know, half a dozen public companies of which Origin Clear has a big piece. So the Origin Clear investors and sweat equity players are rewarded. Welcome everyone to Water the Blue Goal, Thursday the, the 15th, briefing number 190. Next week, there will be no briefing, the 22nd. I do expect we will have one the final Thursday of the year, which I think will do it. I don't like to miss two weeks in a row. Robert Baxter, good evening, gentlemen. Charlie Devanzo, good here too. Thank you very much. Eugene Tilly, good here. 
Okay, guys and gals, appreciate you letting me know. This is going to be a really great fast-paced briefing, so let's get it on. Obviously, the usual disclaimers. All right, so BlackRock. So here's what BlackRock says. Central banks have deliberately causing recessions, warns of a downhill downturn unlike any other. Three shockproof assets to consider. Let's take a look at the actual article here and uh, see what they have to say. I think we can do better than what has been advised here. So first of all, let's take a look. Obviously, the first one, real estate. Yeah, no, no question that real estate works. However, you notice that rents are dropping fast. Well, I think there was an overreaction and rents got too high for a while. Um, and even though there's inflation, you can only charge so much that people can pay. Otherwise, they'll end up moving down to the next level into mobile home parks, which, by the way, are doing extremely well. So real estate, I think, is a strong area, but there's big black holes in real estate. Certain categories are really tough. So it's it's kind of a checkerboard kind of situation. But no, no question that that real estate is strong. Consumer staples, really? Okay, so yeah, people will still buy Quaker Oats and so forth. Um, and Tide and Bounty, maybe so. Personally, I think that there's going to be a lot of uh, people saving on things that they don't really, really need. Do I really need to have a bounce fabric uh, softener in my dryer? You no, know, things like that. Plus, people will tend to go to generics. They'll go to the Safeway brand as opposed to the big brands. So I'm not, I really don't necessarily agree with that. And I don't think it's an asset class anyway. And then the <laughs> wine. Okay. I used to be in the wine industry. I was an importer. And there's no question that the wine industry is interesting, but it's not a big market. Um, and uh, yes, since 2005, Sotheby's Fine Wine Index has gone up 316%. Um, and bottles of fine wine, why not? But I don't see how they are going to generate ongoing income, right? Yes, there's platforms you can go to, just like Bill Koch and LeBron James, no question. But what kind of income do you get? And that's a different story. So I thought that Yahoo could have done better with this story. All right. So moving on here. Zero Hedge uh, went, went full on gnarly this week. Let's take a look. First of all, <laughs> Biden, wages have increased faster than prices. Well, that's flat out fantasy. Somebody, is a, somebody flipped the, the graph upside down or something in the White House because since this administration came into office, prices have increased faster than wages for a record 20 consecutive months. And so what does that do? Well, it turns out that payrolls were overstated by at least 1.1 million. Look at this, April, May, and June, they were madly overstated. They were, look at the June numbers, way positive. No, they were way negative. So um, there was a little creative reporting going on. And frankly, they're just saying whatever. Hopefully the Fed knows what's going on because it's the next story here, which is Zero Hedge thinks that this is the last Fed hike. Why is this so? Well, it's a timing thing. Peak CPI, essentially 23 weeks after a peak in CPI, um, that's the consumer price index, the hike goes down. And here is the graph that supports that. This is good news. I think those of us who know what's going on, what's going on think it is completely insane to keep raising the Fed rates. It is murderous. But this is a contrarian view that uh, right there, 23 weeks, we should start seeing because of consumer price index having gone down the last 23 weeks, that could signal. And frankly, I have previously said that inflation was going to go hyper. 
looks like it's not. And that's primarily because of demand destruction, which again is very, very dangerous for any companies trying to market to consumers. Okay, let's uh, continue here. Well, guess what? Rich Dad, Poor Dad had an idea about what to do. And I've done a quick excerpt here that I think you'll enjoy. So let's take a look at what Robert Kiyosaki has to say. And this is an interview that he had with Adam Taggart of Wealthion. This, this is just a few minutes, but I think it makes a point. Here we go. I'm concerned you know, if what I think is about to happen is going to happen, which is the demise of the U.S. dollar, the hegemony of it and its power and this reserve status. The question is, how safe are bonds? Because I have a friend. I mean, he has not a million. He has hundreds of millions in bonds. And yesterday I went and bought some more silver and hit him in my secret mountain vault. But he says, ah, he won't touch silver. He says, U.S. treasuries are it. So with that question, when he's got hundreds of millions stashed in, they talked about the eyedropper of water and a football stadium. So I think that's a very good metaphor, the eyedropper of water, eyedrop of water and entire football stadium. Because I think the last eyedrop is about to hit because that football stadium's almost filled up. What's safe right now is a can of tuna. I got one for 20 cents the other day. And there's no counterparty risk to my can of tuna because if Safeway or Albertsons goes broke, I still own that tuna. But if I buy a share of Safeway stock and Safeway goes down or Albertsons goes down, my stock is gone too. So I think tuna fish are the safest of all investments today. <laughs> to protect yourself against the abuse of currency and the rising cost of living, hard assets are... I think one of the safest long-term assets that you can invest in right now, particularly hard assets that create an income stream, because most hard asset income streams will adjust along with inflation, right? So this can be real estate, this can be commodity producers, but to a certain extent, Robert, maybe you're saying it tongue in cheek, I don't know, but like stocking up on extra cans of tuna right now is not a bad thing given where food prices have been heading and can continue to head. Yeah, and tuna is a derivative of diesel because it takes diesel to fill the shipping fleets up. And most people don't understand the absolute essential role that energy plays in the economy because nothing happens, no economic activity happens without the energy to power it. And if you care about the pricing of things, you have to be aware of what the energy input costs are for that individual product. Most products require a lot of energy. If you want to get a tuna, well, yeah, it's a fish in the ocean. You would think no energy is involved at all, but you got to basically manufacture the boats to go out there and fish. You've got to put the diesel in for those boats. You've then, in most cases, most fish that's actually sold in America and caught off American shores is actually sent to China to be processed before it yeah. comes back here Crazy. and is put Crazy. in the can. There's just a ton of energy, embedded energy that goes into everything. You've got to really look at your vulnerability to energy costs. And again, They've gone bonkers over this past year, given what's been going on with global supply chains, the war in Ukraine, et cetera. I've just done a very short clip of this, but the first part is about this eyedropper idea. You put an eyedropper of water in a football stadium and then it doubles once a minute. How long will it take to fill the football stadium? Most people think, oh, I don't know, weeks, months. No, 45 minutes. And the last two minutes are from one quarter to one half to full because doubling, doubling, doubling. And so this is what happens is you get these effects. What uh, Robert Kiyosaki is saying is this doubling effect is mathematically very powerful. And so it's not, you don't hit that inflection point. And then when you hit it, it goes crazy. And then the second part, which I cut to 
was uh, the idea that uh, hard income assets are the place to go. Let's put aside the tuna idea, which is actually very smart. Why not? But you're not going to get income from buying tuna. You're going to get, you know, put some tuna away, all good. <laughs> but it's not an income asset. The income asset is, uh, as he said, it's real estate and commodities. Those are the two areas that there will be hard income assets, income generating assets. Now he mentions oil, which is a very good one. Obviously, water is still not fully on the radar because people still believe that water is a government monopoly, whereas it's coming to light that it's breaking up. And this is the trend that, of course, we are leading. So I had a great, great conversation uh, on HC Insider about commodities. So let's take a look uh, because it covers this exact point. And this is, of course, part one. Right. Well, Riggs, welcome to the show. Paul, it's a great pleasure. Thank you. So uh, we're talking water, which, you know, in many ways, I guess, is the the essential commodity. Um, can you, uh, you know, this is certainly something I don't know very much about. Can you just start us off and kind of give us a big picture view of, of how water is used and consumed, you know, around the world? Well, the first thing to know about water is that, strangely enough, and this was the stat that that really blew my mind when I first got into the water industry, from the high-tech industry. And that was that 80% of all sewage is never treated at all in the world. So only one-fifth of all sewage, most of it in the developed world, is treated. The uh, The developing world is like, it just goes away. So it's actually, um, first of all, it's a lot of waste, but it's also a tremendous amount of pollution of our rivers, our oceans, our uh, groundwater, and so forth. And that is the unfortunate state. It creates a lot of... Um, of death and disease, um, you know, 6,000 children a day die from waterborne diseases in the world. And there's, um, you know, a billion or more who have diarrhea any, any particular day. So um, water is a real problem. Um, you know, years ago, Andy Young once said that if you put a pipeline through the Sahara, you would eliminate 50 diseases in one fell swoop. Let's let's um, thank you for that, and it, you know, and I guess that's so crucial to this narrative. Can you just help us? I mean, a bit of terminology here. So, you know, the difference between treatment and recycling. You know, because I think you know, if you grew up in London, you've got a very different experience of how many times someone has drunk that water before you versus, say, where I am in Houston. Um, so differentiate that as well, and then, and, and in particular, what what do we mean by treatment? What is what what are the different levels of treatment that that are needed? Let's first of all deal with the fact that America recycles very little water. Um, Israel is the leader worldwide. Almost 90% of its water is reused. Um, and then the number two in the world is Spain at 20%. The U.S. is at 1%. And the reason is, is that, you know, just like, you know, old in the phone telecoms, we have landlines. Um, so the people who had phones first had the most out-of-date systems. Um, with landlines, similar thing with energy. Our energy grid in America is a unidirectional grid. It just sends energy and it has no feedback loop. Again, because it was started early. Well, the similar things going on with water in that we have a um, an old infrastructure that was built with one purpose only, which is take the water, treat it, and then discard it. There's no way for it to come back if you're in Los Angeles and you're creating dirty water in, um, you know, uphill in Glendale, and it goes all the way down to the Santa Monica Bay to be treated, then it goes into the ocean. It doesn't go back to Glendale. There's no 
there's no piping available for that. So that is a real problem. Now, there are, there's a solution, but basically you have three phases of water treatment. The first one is, of course, purifying the incoming water, be it water from the uh, water district or utility or from a well. You usually have to do something to it. And secondly is the treatment of the water that's been used either by for domestic use, which is called black water, or industrial toxic waste or agricultural waste. And then the third is the reuse of some portion of the water that's treated. Now, what do we mean by treated? It all depends what your end use is. For example, if you're just treating the water so that the municipality will accept it as treated water, meaning you won't have to pay for it to be cleaned, then there's this very specific standards. It's not very high. Or you might be treating it for the purpose of recycling it into irrigation to sprinkle your golf course or your, your lawns. Or you might want to recycle it for potable use, which is a very demanding standard. So that is really the, the third phase. How much you do with the water is really uh, dependent on budget, uh, scarcity, you know, how much do you need that water to survive, and also the purpose. Are you just trying to get rid of it? Are you trying to reuse it, et cetera? So, so in the case of Israel, which obviously suffers from scarcity as a result of climate, but also, I guess, geopolitical insecurity, with, you know, it doesn't share water reserves with its neighbors, perhaps, um, you know, they're recycling 90%. And that's potable water, right? They are, um, that's, so essentially, and I don't, you know, I don't know how much this is a surprise to people, you are drinking water that has been treated at a plant and previously used, right? Well, all water in the world has been recycled. That's the truth about water. <laughs> Fair enough. You know, um, the question is how palatable it is. We have, in San Diego, there was a program years ago, um, they're still trying to do it, of reusing water for potability. Unfortunately, somebody gave it the moniker of toilet to tap, which instantly destroyed the whole idea. And so there's a lot of opposition from municipalities doing it. There is a solution, which is don't have the municipalities do it, but that's we'll get to that. When we talk about Israel, the interesting part is, first of all, why does Israel have 90% um, um, reuse? It's because they have a newer infrastructure. It's designed that way. But, you know, it's um, a little known fact is that Israel provides water to Jordan and Egypt, and that is actually a source of, it's a reason why they're at peace. You know, I imagine if Ukraine had no water and Russia had all the water, there'd be peace if Russia gave the water. It's much more important than gas or, or petroleum, right? Water is critical to survival. So a lot of, um, you have a lot of water wars, but you have a lot of peace that comes as a result of sharing water. There's a, there's a tie up with the history of the United States, right? The reason why sort of states had to get along was ultimately over water rights before anything else, right? You know, how they're gonna share these massive rivers that thread their way through the country. Yes, and we have in the West, we have the Colorado River Compact, as it's called, which is a system of sharing the water um, according to very old, old systems. So you have some people paying as little as $25 an acre foot. That's one acre of land, one foot deep, which is enough roughly for a family of four for a year. They're paying $25 for it. Whereas in San Diego, the marginal cost of water is from basically from their desalination plant is $1,500 an acre foot. So tremendous disparity in, in costs of water caused by these old, old, really their deeds and, and they, they are outright ownership. It's very hard 
they're, they're dealing with it right now because they're looking at how how to fix the problem. There's over there's there's overuse of the water. Um, you know, there's a 1,200 year drought going on, and um, you know everything's running dry. Not just in the West, but in you know I just on my briefing, uh, I, I covered the Mississippi, which literally um, is is turning into a mud flat. So um, you know this is because we've we've allocated water based on plenty, not scarcity. If you say, look, let's assume there's scarcity, let's plan for that, and if there's more, there's more. No, we've done it the other way. We said, uh, you know, we're going to have all the water in the world. Let's divvy it up. And that's where we stand today. Um, it's a really intractable problem. There are solutions. Uh, the first one is, let's try and reuse the water we're using. A lot of this is rooted in history. A lot of this is rooted in a, a mis misunderstanding or a, 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 a sort of hopeful expectations of, 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 of um, you know, God, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, plenty over scarcity. Um, before we move into all this, where is most? So we've talked about how water is treated. Where does most water come from, and you know who's who's using the most water? Can you give us some sense of scale on on that around the world? You know, households versus industry, etc. Generally, in the world, eighty nine percent of all freshwater demand is by industry and agriculture. The ratios vary. In the U.S., it's roughly roughly equal. In some countries, like let's say Somalia, it's more than ninety percent agricultural. So you know, it varies according to how industrialized the the country is. But generally, in America, uh, there's a roughly equal usage. Now, this is something that that we need to confront. Um, in in California, for example, everybody's being exhorted to to save water, take short showers, et cetera. But the, and it's good, I, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but the effect of it is gonna be relatively minor compared to confronting the usage of water by by industry and agriculture. Uh, you know, now the problem is, of course, agriculture and in California is a $20 billion a year market, and it's hard to say no to the lobbyists in Sacramento, but it's illogical to be growing avocados, and almonds and so forth, which are water-hungry crops, when there could be crops that are, you know, barley, uh, for example, that, you know, hemp, hemp's a wonderful crop um, for water. We, we should be adapting the crops to the, um, to the climate of that region, not the other way around. And and most of this water, just so just to park, get it on on tape, I guess, is 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 it coming from rivers? Is it coming from aquifers? And is there a general state of depletion across the Western, the developed world, and even the developing world, that these resources are ultimately being used faster than than they can be replenished through rainfall and snow melt, etc. General aquifers are being depleted. Let's take a look at the Ogallala Aquifer, which is uh, runs down the Midwest. A third of all produce created in America comes from the Ogallala Aquifer. It's also where all that fracking water comes from down in the Permian. It is down more than 150 feet. That is um, very hard to recapture. It takes generations to bring it back up because you don't just refill uh, an aquifer, you know, it sort of has to permeate over time. So this is a uh, basically a permanent loss. We're seeing that happen also because of the Colorado River uh, not being enough for for requirements. It's also increasingly happening in the in the in the West. Twenty thirty percent of the usage is coming from the aquifer. Um, 
the water used for fracking um, is also a factor, but less of a factor than people think. Okay, so you've kind of got this, and there's a little bit of, I mean, there's a, it is a fascinating space, right? Because there's a bit of a tragedy of the commons going on. You've also got actually, you know, this idea of it being the ultimate commodity. You know, wars are going to start, and you know, society is very quickly impacted if the water stops running, um, as you know we've experienced uh, through various environmental disasters. You know, etc. Um, so the, let's go move on to the economics of water, and and perhaps talk about you know this general global trend of public utilities becoming privatized what was the, the what was the the emphasis the, the origin behind that and what was its, the consequences well you've got established economies which have generally a government monopoly on water treatment um, in america for example we take it for granted we open the faucet the water comes out we flush the toilet the water goes away um, and we don't give it another thought why because the government's taking care of it and I know from experience because I started out in a very sexy space called algae for biofuels, which is a, we can talk about, fascinating space. And then because algae became non-viable due to the crashing price of petroleum, I had to move into water. And I found that there's a high degree of disinterest in sewage. People think water is important, but they don't want to know about sewage. So it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. As a result, the federal government has been allocating less and less food, um, funds to water um you know it was it was at a high level with the clean water act in the in the 70s and then it's been dwindling ever since um, as a result our infrastructure in america is running currently about 75 billion dollars a year behind so unfunded infrastructure requirements because there's no constituency that really cares about it and it's not going to change. You can say, oh, that's terrible. we got to allocate money and so forth. Well, the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill that was passed a couple of years ago had a sum total of $55 billion for water, which is less than one year's catch-up. So, you know, uh, and I think that broadband in, in, in hard to, in rural areas is very important, but I submit that water is more important. And that's just not the reality in Washington. Um, there is a lack of, of awareness. So three factors that mean that central water will not be fixed. Number one, Washington is not funding it. It's not going to happen. Uh, number two, there's a NIMBY, not in my backyard problem, which is who's going to allow a sewage plant next to them. And number three is the time it's going to take. It's going to take 20, 30 years to install. I mean, I was in the 80s um, in New York City watching the West Side sewage plant being built at a crawl for years and years and years. And that's just the, the, way, it, the way it's done. Water um, construction is typically very uh, bespoke. It's not standardized. So the solution is very simple. Unburden the central system. In other words, if 89% of the load is coming from industry and agriculture, then just pull industry and agriculture away from the center, which leaves only 11% for the for the residential users, and they can now can get treated properly. I mean, Ireland, for example, water is free in Ireland. Why shouldn't it be free here? Because of the imposition of business and agriculture on um, a water system that is being paid for by everyone, which is resulting in these skyrocketing water rates and so forth. So what that means now is um, this, this decentralization of water is actually very attractive for businesses. They, they, when they figure it out, they like it. 
They can control their water rates. They can reuse the water themselves. Remember that in the old system, the central system, that water is thrown away. The business can actually reuse it for, um, you know, for example, in a brewery, you can reuse about 50% of the water uh, for washdowns and steam vessels and so forth without even thinking about using it to make beer. So they get a good deal out of it and they get control and they, there's less um, imposition of regulation and so forth. So they get, they, it's a very beneficial um, deal for them. And the only issue is really capital, and that's where we come in. I, I guess we've, uh, you've lost me a little bit there. So in the U.S., you've got, you know, let's take it to the U.K., which obviously I know from, from my childhood. You know, you, you went from waterboards, publicly owned, to being privatized. What's been privatized in the U.K. is not treatment. What's been privatized in the U.K. is the fresh water, and disastrously so. For example, all the reservoirs got sold off. And now we have a lack of reservoirs. So um, the private is, I, I, I really sharply distinguish treatment, uh, water treatment being privatized. In other words, let's have the people who make the water dirty treat the water, which is only fair, versus privatizing the source of the water, the clean water, which inevitably serves the public badly because in the UK we saw that uh, there was a lot of scrimping, a lot of short-term profit. And as a result, today, the UK has a big problem with um, inadequate reservoirs um, and it is running dry. It's a big problem over there. Mm. Okay. So in the US and say, let's say Europe, help us understand. So is for the most part in the US and Europe, supply remains public, of course. And in the US, treatment for the most part remains owned by the municipalities. Um, you know, is it, and there's a push towards decentralization of the treatment plant? And then can you contrast that against maybe Europe, for example? Uh, yeah, well, Europe is, is, is also moving towards decentralization. Um, there's some good case studies over there. We're ourselves less focused on the European market only because you've got to start somewhere. But there is a similar need uh, and benefit from decentralized water. You see, all along, the big players have been doing their own water treatment. You know, Pepsi, Amazon, Tesla, big power utilities, they all do their own water treatment. And, and we've been having them as customers for a long time in our business. So we're accustomed to large customers doing their own water treatment, just as often they do their own, water, their, their own power generation, right? What it comes down to is when they are, I mean, when they're smaller units, now you have um, a real challenge. Why? Because it's economically much more difficult. For a large water company like Veolia, they'd rather do a $5 million uh, installation for a power utility than a $500,000 installation for a brewery. And yet, there's far more breweries than power plants. And so there's a middle class here where all the growth is that's not really being served by the big water companies. And these are the users that can make the most difference. They are simply the most numerous. It's always the middle class. Taxation authorities always know that. Yeah. How does it, so just for the economic sense of it, if you choose not to put your waste, if you can prove that your wastewater is now of a sufficient category to go back in, to, it's been treated and can now be flushed down the, you know, out to the sea or whatever, you do not have to pay water rates in that particular municipality, right? You don't have to pay the sewage rates, correct. So you save on sewage rates. You, you still pay for the incoming water, which I think is, uh, <clears throat> I don't think there's a problem with 
yes, if you need to, go ahead and build a well or an, or an artesian well if you want to go deep. But generally, incoming water should come from the municipality. I don't think that should change. But now you deal with your own water. <clears throat> you see, when the water goes back to the city, um, if it's treated, it can go on a regular gravity line. Uh, if it's not treated, if it's sewage, it has to go on a high pressure line. And I don't know if you've heard, but mains have been breaking. Well, those are the high pressure lines and they don't get replaced. So you have a problem with conveyance of the sewage, which is partly why the cities are going, you treat your own water, just give us treated water. Are those sewage rates even set at the right economic level? I get it that companies will make a cost-benefit analysis at some point and say, we don't want to pay you know, sewage rates because um, we were such a scale that you know, we, we will treat it ourselves. It makes sense to build that $5 million plant from Veola. You know, just talking in the more the broader sense, you know, I kind of liken this perhaps to carbon emissions or something. I mean, are we actually even charging the correct rate for sewage, given the, I mean, what is the environmental destruction of just dumping this stuff straight into the ocean and so on? I mean, can you just sort of help us understand the kind of the, the current setup of, you know, whether it's even, we're even charging the right amount to households and even to companies? Water rates have been rising sharply for years because they're not regulated. And they, they greatly um, exceed inflation. They're actually a big burden in, in certain metropo metropolitan areas. They're as much as 14% of somebody's take-home pay, which is ridiculous. You should pay 14% of your pay on water. I mean, come on. Water rates are a real problem, in part because you've got this um, you know, industri industrial and agricultural load that's kind of uh, choking the municipalities. Um, and so, yes, there's a real benefit um, to getting off the municipality because, for various reasons, their rates are skyrocketing. That's a very cool and interesting viewpoint from a professional commodity podcast, right? Which is a different point of view than most people's. It was actually very interesting. In the, and you'll see in part two, which is not next week, right? Week after that we will be having uh, more specific conversations around the commodity business. All right, now, a whole different thing. Usually, you're tell me about your company, and you've heard this 80% thing many, many times. You're becoming an expert like me. But in this podcast, I was asked a very interesting question, and it became a very interesting podcast. Let's hear it out. What is innovation? Riggs, I am so excited to have you on the show today. Uh, I love the work that you're doing, and I can't wait to, to hear more about that and your thoughts on innovation. Jared, it's a privilege. Thank you very much. What, in your mind, is innovation? Well, innovation, in my mind, is literally the future, right? You are, you are blazing the future with innovation. Anytime you fall back on complacency, then you're falling back a little bit behind the present, you know, like, so ideally I, I believe, and uh, you know, a, a big influence in my life that I've talked to you about said the same thing is we should be living a little bit into the future, you know, 20 minutes, half an hour, whatever it is, but in, in terms of mental strategies could be weeks, months, and years, but that is, you know, uh, again, according to the same person that the future is the only virgin territory there is. It's completely unclaimed. Nobody owns it, you know, and it's, it's kind of our canvas to draw upon. And to me, that equates with innovation. Oh, that's, that's brilliant. I love the simplicity of it, 
um, and the you know the space there is in that definition to kind of explore different different act, uh, aspects of what what innovation is. When you think about the future, what terms, what kind of terms do you think about it in? What shape does it take? Okay, well, the very first thing you have to understand about the future is you've got to un- unharness yourself from the past. Hmm. Too often we're stuck with you know genuine problems like you know, I'm going to be foreclosed on or whatever. So things that are literally holding us back and, and plunging us into a regressive mode, or we have um, thinking that has become uh, solidified, right? And there is a wonderful book uh, by Clayton Christensen, which is The Innovator's Dilemma. And he talks about that very problem and that organizations get into a business model. And he, one of the case studies he used was the disk drive industry which over time went from you know, 28 inch platters all the way down to whatever it is now. Right. And along each, each generation, the new generation did not come from the existing player. It came from insurgents in that company who were like blown away, like nah, nah, nah. And they went and started their own shop and blew away the old people. And there's a reason for it. It's because these big organizations are wedded to the sales model. Well, we make you know, uh, $350,000 per platter we can't make $250. It just doesn't work. It just, right. The model blows up. And so they cannot assimilate it. And so that's what it comes down to in the end, I think, is, is you have to be willing to break the mold and go, you know what? The rules are changing. This very interesting man uh, uh, who runs this thing called a Sirius Report, S-I-R-I-U-S. And they are a consultancy, geopolitical. And and he pointed out, and I listened to this interview yesterday, he pointed out that that, uh, the West is kind of thinking in terms of unipolar world and it's become an outdated model. And as a result, they're having trouble making it work. You know, they're like, we're going to sanction you and then nothing happens or the, or, or the reverse happens or whatever. And he points out, look, we're moving towards a multipolar world and it's not a bad thing because it's a, a world of equilibrium, a world of hopefully collaboration. And so the sooner that the, the West, Europe, US, et cetera, recognizes this and, and embraces it, the sooner they will benefit. And uh, unfortunately, generally in, in large corporations and in government, you have to wait for people to literally age out right. <laughs> to change their minds. And unfortunately, I think that's how it's going to be. Mm. That's an interesting thought that, you know, sort of the, the past and the future can't, that the past and the future can't really coexist in the same model and the same, you know, construct in the same mindset. Um, and th- that first step being kind of the willingness to let go of, of what you, what you've known, because everything you've known is part of, part of the past by definition. Well, of course we need experience, right? Right. Um, but there's a saying experience is a great teacher, but she sends in big bills. Mm. One of the bills is that you are marked by your experience. You know, you go in and you attack the problem, you pull away and you have a lot of the debris associated with that experience you carry with you. Mm. Now you're like, oh, okay, well, I learned that lesson. Oh my God. And it's very important that, um, and this is not easy, mm. to, you've got to keep engaging, got to keep hitting it, but then somehow come away clean and go, okay, this was good. This was bad and got it as opposed to it was all kind of a mess and I'm happy I'm done with it. Then unfortunately, I think that is the path toward becoming irrelevant, in my opinion. Mm, 
the path toward irrelevance. That is a that's a dangerous path, and and we rarely know we're on it when we are. Uh, I wonder if you know, as I think about talking about being marked by our experience, how do you take away the lessons from your experience without the scars and the baggage, uh, bringing those along with it? How do you? What's the? How do you take advantage of the past without being sort of defined by it? Well, of course, I'm I'm not going to get into you know personal processes. There's a number of ways. That sure. We're not going to get into it. We're really talking about what do we do as members of an organization. Mm-hmm. And the best way, in my opinion, is to have to talk it out with your collaborators, right? Got it. You know, um, this thing happened. Okay. Lessons learned. And you know, the, I don't know if you know this, but the military has implemented a lessons learned department in the Pentagon where literally they are charged with, okay, what lessons do we have to learn from this? And that's very smart, right? So what, what you do is you go, okay, kind of how, how, how perhaps in, in a therapeutic session, you might go over an old experience and, and, you know, figure out what happened, whatever the process is. Think of it in terms of an organizational way. Like, okay, I talk with a guy who I've been doing strategy with and I go, okay, Ken, what did that teach us? Whoa, something happened there. What's going on? Okay. You know what? I think we learned this and this and this. No, I disagree. And through that process, it kind of um, rearranges the garage, so to mm, speak. Right. Store your cars again, <laughs> not as cluttered as it was, right? Uh, right. It's, 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 I think it's the only way is, is you, you can't ball it up. Um, sometimes I speak to my wife, uh, and then she's different because she really doesn't neither, she's a school teacher. She neither knows nor cares about my, my world, mm. but she has great intuition. And she'll go, you know, blah, blah, blah. I, this didn't. From the way you were talking, it didn't seem to be very healthy, and this seemed to be going well. And I go, you know, you're right. So if we if we kind of learn who our trusted um, uh, thought partners are, mm. yes, and nourish that. And how do you nourish it? By giving thought as well as receiving, like you know, furnishing right and mutual respect. I had um, experience recently with uh, my CFO where. About you know about a week ago, things got kind of harsh because I felt he was not willing to listen mm. to my to my wonderful advice. <laughs> it's always wonderful on our side, isn't it? <laughs> you know, he took it harshly, and so mm. literally yesterday we sat down at a greasy spoon and we talked and talked and talked and worked our way through it to where you know he got it all out, I got it all out. We exchanged how great we are for each other, and in that context what can we do to kind of connect better? And as a result, you know, we came out ahead of it. So yeah, I wish we hadn't had that little interaction where it got kind of like brown things blew up. Um, but it's okay. If out of that, we go, there was an underlying problem for him and for me that caused it. So we mm. got to the, and I thought that was, first of all, it's a lot of fun. And I drank a lot of coffee, which I'm always makes me happy, you know? And, and then, so I felt like, my life advanced a bit with that win. And uh, I, I think his did too. That's fantastic. And it, and what that illustrates to your point, everybody's every ind- each individual has their own process of how they, you know, manage things and all that, but organizationally uh, just the mindset of having that conversation, driving that dialogue and making it part of the culture and not an exception that only certain, certain people, uh, you know, take advantage of. I think that's, 
that's critically important. And it's something that um, that isn't always tied to innovation from a um, from a uh, reputational or sort of a, you know, when people think of innovation, they often think of either this big workshop room with glass whiteboards and post-its everywhere, or they think of some, you know, individual genius, you know, with a light bulb appearing over his or her head that, you know, comes up with this amazing idea. No, no, I think you're getting there, which is that it's not happen doesn't happen in isolation. It happens mm -hmm. with change. And uh, uh, this, this, I've been studying the, the lectures of this particular um, philosopher that I follow, and he did, I don't know, 12,000 lectures and so forth. And he said, I figure things out in the middle of a lecture. I'll be talking and you'll be listening to me, you, the 24 people, whatever it is. And I'll go, and literally things will form in the process of my, uh, you know, breaking it down. And oh, oh yeah, I get it. So things don't just, you know, you meditatively figure things out. I think that's very rare. I think it's done with the um, communication process, as, as that same philosopher said, you know, communication is the universal solvent, mm -hmm. meaning it breaks things down. If you and I communicate, it, it, it sort of breaks down problems. So I'm a big believer in that. So innovation is the future. What isn't innovation? Well, then obviously being trapped in existing paradigm, which is the past, mm. right? And, and, you know, uh, look at how, uh, what happened to Rome. Rome got so impressed with their forums and the might of their armies and so forth. And then it stopped kind of being the, you know, they stopped carrying a 60-pound pack, the soldiers, to, to war. They, I oh, know that's too hard. And they, they kind of got soft and they sort of abandoned things. They started, you know, riding on their, their previous achievements. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to realize that every moment of every day is we are different. We're not the same. I'm not the same as I was at the beginning of this podcast, nor even two seconds ago. But that's, that's a, um, it's a, it's a very refreshing thing because I have a, an opportunity to create something new each moment, but also I need to create something new. Otherwise it kind of loses the point and I go into a decay spiral, right? I go, okay, you know what? I'll just kind of, you know, hang out, and, you know, watch some TikTok or whatever it is, right? right. Um, become a consumer. I think the future is created by that kind of uh, innovation in the face of people saying you're an idiot, you're a fool, you're on drugs, whatever, right? Right. 99.99% of the people, you know, um, group think is a real thing, right? So people group think like, Individuals act creatively. Groups do not act creatively. Mm. Important to remember that. If the Democratic or Republican Party is good, it's not because of the party. It's because of the individuals within it, right? That's what makes them good. And so these are individuals held that, are, that came together on a particular ideal, and now they're forging ahead. Well, when you lose that, when you surrender to the identity of the, of the group or party, well, now you just got this dumb flock right and then they go over the cliff like the, the lemmings right, <laughs> right. Oh. Uh, that's, that's fascinating i think uh, it makes a lot of sense and and your point about you know being willing to stand apart from the group stand apart from convention and hold on to the thing that makes you different um not just hold on to it but continue to talk about it you know own it um that is a special um trait and it's not 
it's a it's a I think it's a humanistic trait. I don't think it's a trait of a of a an engineer or a scientist or a executive or uh, I think there are people who do the who are willing to do that or have that mindset and and then people who who don't. Well, I think anyone can be. Yeah, that's fair. It's I think I think somewhere along the line someone has made the decision or allowed it to happen that they're like you know what I'm just kind of kind of just toe the line whatever it is right mm-hmm. and, and and often there are good reasons for it they they have insecurities about their finance or their family and there's uh, I'm not saying there's not good reasons but um, you know w- with regard to my last 14 years I've been literally living this public company for 14 years which is a long time uh, for a company to be still a penny stock after 14 years right. right. You know that you neither died nor made it into the big time. So what the heck, right? And that's a story, really, of of having identified a really, really huge challenge, and then tr- trying to like, what the heck? How do we get to? How do we get it? You know, and and, and, and make small wins, small wins, and um, and then of course there are the doubters, of course. But the good news is that. There's two categories of people that I've found to be really helpful to me. Hmm. And one is accumulating a core group of investors who are like, you know what? I get it. Keep me informed. I'll do my best to support you, right? Number one. And number two is the bench of people in your organization that over time kind of um, they aggregate. Hmm. I don't, I believe in a very organic way of hiring in a sense that I don't, I don't like go out and conduct a big job search. I don't know how, how people do that. You know, I think it's done more through relationships and connections and and the network, you know, and, and then you come to, okay, you know, this person, uh, for example, my, my COO came out of this adventure I had in, in 2018 uh, in crypto and he came out of the crypto world. He was working with me there and, and he became a key guy in my company. So kind of like we, 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 um, we grow a group. At one point, when I years and years ago, I was, I was in film production, hmm. worked on a film by Sam Raimi, and Sam Raimi over years built his portable group. Ah, okay. His mafia. You can't get. You can't rebuild a team for every movie. For every movie that makes perfect sense. I never thought about that, but it it makes perfect sense. Yeah. This guy, like that guy Jackson, who who makes you know the. Hobbit and all that. He again, he has his team, and so and I saw it. And at the time, I had the opportunity to to join onto it. And really, that's when I um, this was the early '90s, and um, and I decided that it was I, I really loved tech, and that was a different world. But the point mm-hmm. is, is that if I'd done that, I would still be in his production team today. I see, because that the smart people like Sam Raimi. They cultivate that. They they know the importance of having a, a really good um, team of equals, as uh, Abraham Lincoln called it. That, mm-hmm. that, that the equals were his enemies, but they were also very vital, right? Right, right. Yeah, I I, I think that makes that makes so much sense, and 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 I can see how it would create some um, efficiency and some uh, and and kind of reduce these sort of friction associated with learning new ways of working, you know, getting to know each other, developing, you know, that type of rapport and all those things. 
That was something altogether new. And uh, it was a different kind of podcast and I enjoyed it tremendously. It allowed me, again, it, it really to think things through as to where we are and where we're at. And what's really interesting, and you know, right now there's so little I can say about what's happening due to the restrictions. There's that announcement we made a couple of weeks ago that we are investigating this um, potential merger with a special purpose acquisition corporation, which theoretically, if it happened, and there's no, we're not saying it would happen or not happen. That's one of the things I really, really warned about. Could, you know, could create a, a NASDAQ company very quickly. But again, we cannot even say that we have such a thing actually happening. And we've built such a great base. And I think this podcast really illustrated for me the base of innovation that we built in our company through the, you know, again, the investor base that we have, which are amazing. Um, and also the, the managers like, like Ken, like Tom, like Prasad, all these, all these amazing people that have kind of joined and agreed. They've joined and agreed and they kind of were, were of one mind, but we're also very individual. And we're like, no, I don't think so. So out of all that, I believe we are at an inflection point. And again, I can say so little, but I can only say, hey, you know what? If our revenues tripled <laughs> on the last report, something's being done right. And that's where we are going. Okay, so with that, I am going to jump into the freewheeling discussion. Mr. Ken Berenger. Good evening. So that was interesting. Um, I, I like the um, I like the discussion on on innovation. I, I think I sat through the entire Kiyosaki article. I don't know if it was Kiyosaki or the BlackRock that also talked about something that they, you didn't touch on, and I think it's worth mentioning. Um, kind of a spooky thing that happened is that Saudi Arabia has agreed to take digital yuan for oil, and for those who don't understand the implications of that, that is super. Super. That is the de-dollarization of the planet. That was and this uh, serious report guy. It was okay. Um, so the de if they de-dollarize, if they if they if they uh, unhook or uncouple energy from the petrodollar, um, our standing as the dollar in the world. It, it, it what it does is it creates an absolute necessity to flight to assets, and you know. We were very fortunate that we discovered how to tool this thing to become a, a revenue producing asset. The fact that we were insanely lucky, the fact that it's the only asset on the world in the world that's essential for all life, that's kind of important, right? And not yet spoiled. Well, right. Also, right, exactly. There's not um, the elites or the, you know, the, the mega, you know, the mega party uh, of people aren't already controlling it. I thought that that um, it was very serendipitous. You and I have talked about how we have, must have an angel on our shoulder. Well, um, you know, and it's a timing thing because remember way back uh, in the seventies, uh, there was. No, a guy, I was very young back then. But go ahead. Uh, some some people actually study history. Oh, okay. But um, this guy McCall actually strung a wire between two locations in Texas and got sued by AT and T for doing that. And that case, he won. That's right. And he became MCI. Yes, that was the beginning of the breakup very early on. So the whole idea of this decentralized tele telecommunications started very small mm -hmm. and very apparently minimal. But it, it literally and one disruptor, one guy broke the cut, like one guy um, pushed back. Exactly. One guy pushed the bully. Right. And this was what I went into in, the, in that uh, in that conversation on the podcast is it's not a group thing. 
it is uh, individuals that, that change things. And you and I really derived this for, by necessity, the same way McCall derived it by necessity. He had to do this for whatever reason. And then he had to defend himself against this monster AT&T. And one thing led to the next. But the, the point I'm making is, at that time, it was a very virgin asset. Sure. It was AT&T, MCI, and then there was a big breakup into the baby bells. But it took a long time. And it was a clean asset for a long time. And then as the cell phone tower plate was a clean asset. So when you have these development phases of an asset, it's relatively immune to these big geopolitical things because people, it hasn't become a, a, a massive enough business for people to try and like- spoiled, Right, it hasn't been spoiled. Um, one other key fact that I think really works in our favor tremendously is again, getting back to the fact that there's nothing else that's essential. Um, also, it was interesting uh, you were talking about, you know, water wars, wars being fought over water. The fact that water actually delivers peace in a place like Israel, right? Surrounded by enemies that want to destroy her, but I'll give you water. Oh, in that case, uh, right. we're, we're okay with you. I mean, we don't like you, but we'll, we'll take your water. Um, being able to do that on a global scale, think about the geopolitical implications of being able to deliver that on a global scale. When I talk to people and I have that wild look in my eye, that's the things that I think of. The, I mean, the, the, not the big picture, but the huge picture. And yes, you know, when we get back down to reality, we're on this little postage stamp uh, in, in terms of our stake in the ground, right? Yeah. Um, but, the, but the technology to globalize these things like MCI and AT&T and the baby bills and then cellular, it took decades to develop the tech, the, te the, the technology to develop what we want to do is already built. Yeah. So it's an exciting moment because the, and then, look, there were many bodies on the road that we will, we will pass the bodies on the side of the road that kind of died on the road, building that road. Right. It was like that railroad, you know, um, a lot of guys didn't make it. They didn't make the trip. Um, but now that that's a well-worn path. And I think that a um, couple of things you mentioned with the gentleman on innovation Trusting your thought partners. Mm -hmm. I think that none of us would be where we are right now had we not had those heated discussions, right? You know, no, that's a terrible idea. You know, and 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 we just kept kept we just kept working it and working it and working it. Um, I also think a couple of things that I think that I learned in working with you. Don't get stuck in my process. I have a process. My process. But I also have to understand your process because I might learn something. You know, when you're when you think you're smart, at least you may be smart, actually. But if you think you're smart, you think your process is the only process or at least you get stuck there. You know, no, 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 no. Let me tell you why you're wrong. <laughs> the conference, the conference, right. So the conversation turns into that's a great idea. But let me tell you why you're wrong instead of listening. Right. You have to listen. Um, otherwise, you get stuck in your paradigm. Innovation is also constant. On a personal level, innovation is constant, constant, vigorous self-appraisal, right? Constantly correcting yourself. And okay, you but, but very importantly, it must be based on acquiring outside facts. We, yes, too often we, we internalize, we're like the washing machine, right? Data. No, no, no. Constant self-reflection based on data, not on your feelings. Right. Because right? there's, you know, there's, you know, you're entitled to your, you're entitled to your feelings. You're just not entitled to your facts, right? Um, but we, it has to be data driven. You know, we, we've even uh, we've even had this thing where you're like, geez, you know, you're awful hard on yourself. I have to be. I have to constantly course correct, but I have to do it based on data. 
Well, you're the David Letterman of this company. I've, I've, no, I'm not quite that bad, but I get it. I get it. David Letterman for the audience um, famously would listen to the entire show he just did after having taped it and criticize every microsecond. Fortunately, Ken is not quite there, but and, and we're, I'm going to keep you from going there. Just saying. Yes, I, and I appreciate that. And, and, and I get charged for the therapy session. But uh, <laughs> the, the, uh, the, 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 point, the point I'm making is I think vigorous and constant self-reflection, self-correction is our own internal innovation. Oh, uh, that's so good. I like that. I like right. that a lot. Yeah. Okay. Well, good, good thing that we're recording it because I won't remember what I said. <laughs> yes, um, we, we have these post-it moments for okay. sure. Okay. Well, listen, uh, I wanted to mention, because we're running out of time. There's already pumpkins. The it's concept like six of, of accredited investors getting this royalty is a phase that is going away. It's a $20 million phase that, that you've already managed to raise about eight, $8 million of it. So about $20 million to go. And then we stop for a while. And so then it's going to be the regulation A offering is going to be institutional money. We will come back to regular investors doing it, but it will not be as rich as today because we are essentially treating people like founders because we're still piloting water on demand. The opportunity to, and the, the, the um, really we would have and should have changed it a long time ago, but we didn't because we've had this other thing developing rigs and it was still off in the, it was kind of, and we were like, all right, well, let's see how close we get to it. Right. Um, so, you know, we never changed this thing, but I, I think over, uh, over in, in very brief time, hopefully, um, it'll be, it'll be widely acknowledged that the need to do it this way really doesn't, we don't have to keep doing this, which is, which is much easier on my lifespan. Right. Um, so it's, it's all good. No, look, I, I'm, I'm thrilled with where we are at, um, and and I love discussions like the one you just had. I, I you know we we used to have them every Friday night driving home, um, and, and I think I, I think that's always good. I think I think it keeps us in our own personal constant self appraisal mode, which is good, and it keeps me sharp. So I'm grateful for that. Well, um, I'm not going to start singing the way we were. Okay. <laughs> bring me flowers okay <laughs> all right well everyone thank you very much and remember uh there is no ceo briefing next week the 22nd i wish everyone happy holidays merry christmas happy hanukkah kwanzaa Thursday the 29th will be the next one so i wish everyone a wonderful break and then the, on the 29th i certainly hope we will have had some very interesting pieces of news behind us and if you're interested go sign an nda with ken because he will be right. And if I don't speak to you, Merry Christmas, happy holidays to, to all of you. Um, but um, I will talk to you, but you got to sign an NDA. So. <laughs> all right, everyone. Thank you so much for your support and interest. It's been a pleasure so far. See you on the 29th. Good night, Good night. folks.